welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And today on the podcast, we are going to take a look at Weird War Tales number nine. And before we get started, Rich would like to hit us with some retroactive history. Yeah, I'd just like to go back to war as hell for a minute. Uh, These scripts are often written up to a a month out, don't ask me why. And between the writing and recording, things can change. Uh, from what I had originally recalled from the other issues, I thought there was a make the wrong things right angle that Kowalski was assigned to do. Uh, but after recording the last episode, I went back and reviewed the other issues. Death doesn't care about making the wrong things right. He just wants his body count. And Kowalski does his best to keep that tally as low as possible for whatever cause he finds himself involved in. And you know what? If anything, this new review of mine has actually increased my opinion of the title. So go check that out. Yeah, I like that a lot better. I like the fact, and it, it kind of gels with when when I read this. Um, I went back and looked at the issue, and it does gel with Death's attitude in the story, where he's like, "Oh, at least forty million die in this war." You know, he, he does seem just hungry for bodies. You know, so I, I like that take a lot better. And um, I still haven't finished reading ten through fifteen. Like, yeah, there, I I went back and I reread all of them, and it's they're, they're surprising. Some of the stories are really surprising, like the Italian versus the Englishman, the Nazi that's helping Jews escape. I mean, there's all kinds of just really intriguing stories that go on in, in the remaining episodes. So I would really recommend you know, going to check out. The rest of yeah, I got to get on the stick with that. So before I do that, and before we jump into our issue, we're going to take a short break to advertise another excellent podcast. And we'll be right back. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you? And many more. But wait a minute, you might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. 
And we're back. So, as I said before, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales issue number nine, and Rich is going to give us the cover detail. Yeah, we, know, we did notice that the helmeted skull logo next to the title disappeared last issue. And looking forward, it doesn't appear they bring it back either. Maybe Orlando didn't like it or something. Anywho, cover art is by Nick Cardi. Under a red sky, armor, German armor crosses a frozen lake. A city in flames behind them. A frozen army of what appears to be Viking dead, brandishing axes and swords, rises from the lake to engage them. One on horseback wields a tattered banner that reads, None shall pass the frozen army of death. The title is all in yellow, sitting over the rising smoke and creates a great contrast to the red sky. Real good look, lots of color, lots of contrast. This is, this is a great, great cover. I really, really enjoy the, the imagery of this. Uh, it is dated uh, December 1972, on sale October 17th, 1972. And I'm just going to be silly here and point out the obvious. Vikings, or whoever these guys are, probably wouldn't be flying a banner written in English. I know. Shut up, Clavin. Data reference. Let's see who gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's, 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 you know, that's a pretty good little, uh, reach for a killjoy don't worry i have plenty of stuff to say actually some pretty negative stuff to say about the cover in some ways so i'll, I'll jump in with you know this is nick cardi so i am loath to criticize it in any way i'll say that up front because nick is a legend and his covers on the 60s teen titan series and his aquaman covers are amazing consistently amazing so i'll just start with positive commendation since you know that's the meaning of the word so number one this is by nick carty so to my eyes the individual elements of the drawing are extremely pleasing and just cool to look at the scene is exciting in concept and mostly in execution and like you said the, the um probably viking warriors from the looks of it are holding a banner that the titles incorporated into he knows how to bring elements together in a composition which brings me to my reluctant but nagging criticism Criticism. To me, this cover looks unfinished. Can't shake it. The empty space around the tanks is too empty, and the clear alleyway from the, the lead tank down between the two groups of frosty barbarians is just too clear. I know they're all on a plane of ice, but the sheer emptiness of the surface of the ice is too empty to be interesting. You know, maybe the two groups of icy warriors could have been closer together, so at least their weapons would have filled the gap a bit. I don't know. But hey, you know, it's to me, especially because it's a Nick Carter cover the fact that my eyes keep getting drawn to the fact that the bottom middle of the cover looks empty is something that stands out to me but i will say if these are supposed to be vikings at least nick didn't draw them all wearing horned helmets so that's good because that's cartoon shorthand for these are vikings and it's not historically accurate oh it is uh, not there's 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 my pseudo commendations what about you yeah, maybe we should call this bit uh, commendations or criticisms or something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I got to go down the criticism line a little bit myself here. Something about the tanks, the way the tanks are drawn bothers me. The way the turret appears to be triple stacked on the hull is really distracting. Either the turret is too small or the hull is. The ones in the background are even worse. It looks like they're stacked up like a Big Mac. The lead tank has the commander in the hatch, which adds to the odd scale. Uh, good thing Cardi's got the dead guy's coal. You're welcome. Different show every day. Try the deal. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I mean, like I said, it, it's it, it, the drawing. It's the drawings that are on there are incredibly good. 
It's just for me that that little empty alleyway stands out like he could have done something. And, you know, spoiler alert, later on in the issue, I feel someone else did do something with an image like that that solved the problem. So it's proof then I'm not crazy, but we'll get to that. Inside the issue, you know, normally in Weird War Tales, we've all become used to the framing sequence, the, um, you know, little bit of opening story that is going to come back at the end of the issue and sort of wrap around the short stories in in, in the, the main body of the comic. Here, we just have a one-page lead-in that is scripted by E. Nelson Bridwell with art by Howard Chaikin. So a young Howard Chaikin. So it's just four panels, three panels forecasting the stories coming up inside the comic. You have frozen warriors against armor, like on the cover, two Civil War soldiers fighting, a skeletal leg of death stepping on a doll in the ruins in the third panel. So it's a little different than even the framing sequences we're used to beyond the fact that it's just one page and that it actually seems to preview, it wants to preview the contents that are coming up in the issue. So this is a complete change from what we're used to. It's well drawn, but it's pretty brief and it's more of an overture, you know, or a table of contents almost. We don't have any killjoy on this necessarily. And since I rambled for my comments and commendations, I'll let Rich take the first. Yeah, I don't got much on this. I mean, like of, of the four panels, my favorite one is the very first one. You know, it's a it's a white robed death, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. Holding a sword that invites you to enter the portals of weird war if you dare to be a witness to man's ultimate insanity. It's it's just the way that the skeleton is holding on to the sword, you know, kind of like a knight uh, holding onto the hilt and everything, and the tip is on the ground. It just the imagery of it, there's something about it that just really calls out to me. So that that was the that was the the uh, the panel that uh, called out to me the most. That's the one that's my favorite of the four. Oh, yeah, it's a great drawing, and and you know Bridwell's narrative text in it is is fantastic. The man's ultimate insanity. Like he's he's not sitting back. He, that that's some swinging for the fences dialogue there or narration. And I was wrong, man. And when I was talking earlier, uh, the solution to the cover's problem comes right now not later in the issue. So panel two of this opening page is some of the Joe Cubertiest Howard Chaikin I can ever remember seeing. I mean, we all have our, everyone has their influences, but it's also a good example of how to solve the problem of emptiness on the cover's icy plane. Chaikin adds frozen motion lines sort of dripping from the icy warriors and their weapons. An elegant solution to the problem. The, the, the plane of ice is no more filled with objects than the one on the cover. It's just he uses the visual language of comics to show something that suggests motion lines and, you know, frozen or freezing dripping water coming off of these warriors to make the space look less empty and balance out the image so right there boom i am proven right on page one so that's always nice not wasting any time <laughs> yeah so yeah and i'll be interested to see as we plow along here if this technique for the framing sequence lasts if it you know continues to be just a preview of the contents again it's it's drawn by a young howard chaikin it all looks great i dig what he did with the frozen warriors so uh we'll jump to the first actual story in the book okay it is the promise written by bob conniger art by alfred alcala it's the cover story april 5th 1242 teutonic knights charge across frozen lake chud near scoff swearing to crush the defending russian mongrels under their hooves prince alexander nevsky and his army of peasants stand in their way swearing to defend mother russia and their loved ones in the city behind them 
with their lives. The ice cracks under the weight of the mountain knights as the Russians engage them, and the bulk of the invaders drown or freeze in the frigid water. Alexander gives thanks to God for their victory, but knows other invaders will come. He swears to stop them here at Lake Chud, even if he has to rise from the grave to do it. Eight centuries later, well, seven, actually, the Germans have returned and are driving the Russian defenders into Lake Chud with their panzers. Preferring to risk the bitter cold water over German steel, the Russians attempt to swim to Skov that night to defend their loved ones, remembering the vow of their ancestors to stop the enemy here, even if they have to rise from the grave to do it. Dawn reveals the lake froze overnight, trapping the fleeing Russians and freezing them solid. The tanks begin to cross the lake to capture the city, only to have the ice crack beneath them. As the tank crews bail out, the Russian icemen come to life and begin to strangle them. Pistol shots have no effect as the Germans are dragged beneath the surface, one screaming, Nightmare! Nightmare! Across the chill span of centuries, a promise has been kept. Actually, Max says the killjoy was here moment for this one, but before I hand over the reins, I'm going to do a history minute. The Battle of the Ice actually occurred. Lake Chud is now called Lake Pepys, bordering Estonia and Russia. Nevsky's victory arrested the eastern expansion of the Teutonic tribes, and he was canonized as a saint in the Russian Orthodox Church in 1574. Nevsky is a key figure in medieval Russian history and rose to legendary status based on his victories over German and Swedish invaders. The icebreaking is more of a modern embellishment of the, of the battle, as no period references of it happening have been found. Also, if the lake only froze that night, why the hell did the German tank commander think the ice would support the tanks? Wait, X. Yeah, so <laughs> these Teutonic knights in the actual story, they are drawn to look like cartoon Vikings. Horned helmets, fur capes, no shirts, and all. When I looked the Teutonic knights up, they sometimes had horns on their helmets, but the helmets were bucket-shaped, covering the whole head and face. And the horns were often more like birds or bat wings or a pair of curved serpents. They looked nothing like these helmets in the story. The horned helmets were also likely just ceremonial. So, you know, there's that. And these, the Teutonic Knights wore shirts. They didn't wear fur capes. They looked like knights. So th there's all that, you know. And then also from the cover and Chaikin's one panel bit, we're led to believe that the more barbaric looking Teutonic Knights will rise as frozen killers from the lake, medieval weapons and all. Instead, it's the modern day Russians who rise from the dead having only frozen to death the night before, holding rifles and mostly just choking the Germans with their bare frozen hands. So whole lot of historical mm. inaccuracy <laughs> and, uh, and false advertising going on here. Uh, so yeah, I, I, in a rare um, uh, moment of clarity, I, I did some research and actually came up with some Killjoy content. Don't think it'll happen again, but there it is. Uh, you've, uh, you've struck gold here and there. Usually the way this works out is I... I'm good through like the, you know, 18th century. And then you usually do all the medieval mythic, you know, cause you were talking about, you know, like the golem before, you know, how that was uh, supposed to work slash be programmed slash whatever. So don't sell yourself short, man. You've had, you've had a, a moment here and there. Hey, mythological <laughs> and, you know, medieval nerdy stuff. Uh, you know, what can I say? I played a lot of D and D back in the day. So uh, that's where a lot of that, started. So as far as comments and commendations, which I think we'll call the little section now, I'll go with page three, panel two. That is some Hal Foster, Prince Valiant looking stuff right there. I like it. 
that is it, it's just like you know where um the russian is defending and the the horse is rearing up and it just reminded me of reading prince valiant in the newspapers as a kid on sunday it, it's a beautiful drawing and i really dig it and on page six panel one there's this smirking nazi head floating in a swastika mid-panel and it's an odd somewhat out of place but hilarious touch to me it just it's so weird it's like a little pop-up balloon that's shaped like a swastika with this smirking nazi uh, making some you know sinister comment so there was that i mean alcala's art is just fantastic i i do dig the story quite a bit it reminded me of something from creepy or eerie magazine you know i used to read those in the 80s my brother and i one of the few comic magazines he ever read were those two horror mags and this really felt like it could have jumped right out of those pages to me and it's genuinely weird for weird war tales we have ice zombies indisputable weird i like it yeah for me uh, i think alcala did a much better job on the armor than uh, cardi did on the cover it looks like they're panzer threes uh, i like the last panel in the story one of a dead german and uh, russian on the bottom of lake chud with two wrecked tanks in the background bubbles you know trickling up from the hull and everything the, you know the two dead guys have a, have this look of just abject horror on their faces it's a it's a really powerful panel and actually you could almost the way they have the end, you know, to mark the end of the story, kind of like draped over the two bodies too, is probably like almost like an accidental additional touch. So yeah, this 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 was a good story. I don't usually go all in on the on the medieval stuff, but this this was a fun story. So. Yeah, I mean that that final panel is is a stunner, and I saw that you had picked it, so um, it was easy to find another cool panel in this story. The you gotta start writing the scripts, Max. <laughs> I no, get first crack on No, this. that's fine, man. Because the, the you know with a lot of the art in this series, the, it's been like you know there is no shortage of cool stuff to point out so i have no problem with that but yeah that last panel is genuinely haunting i, I really dug it and, and points for uh for me you're probably pronouncing it correctly but i just kept calling it like chud and kept thinking of the uh 80s horror movie chud the whole time hey so that, i don't speak russian i got no idea <laughs> i could be butchering it you could be right i don't, nah, I, don't I was just entertaining myself throughout the story going <laughs> hey, hey hey chud you know and uh i could be so. mispronouncing the name of the russian city i could be mispronouncing the name of the lake what they call it now hey the good news is now that the show is actually coming out people will probably let us know (laughs) (laughs) yeah so speaking of people uh coming up to us and and letting us know how they feel we'll um go move on to the next story here which is about brotherhood and friendship This is called Blood. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is called Blood Brothers, and it's written by our old buddy Bob Conniger, with art by Jerry Taleak or Taleak. Talk oh, about! I, 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 I know this name. I, I I love this guy's art, but I have never heard anyone say his name out loud. So Jerry Taleak is how I'm going to go for now. The synopsis of this story is as follows. The two Ramsey brothers, both Southerners serving at West Point, get into a savage fistfight as the Civil War approaches. Walter is staying loyal to the Union, and Van 
is loyal to his home state. Each believes that the other is a traitor. And as the Southern cadets depart the academy, the brothers vow if they meet on the battlefield, they won't be brothers anymore. Walter ends up in command of a cavalry troop and relishes how Reb blood makes his saber shine. Reports come in that the rebel unit nearby is dug in behind a stone fence and is commanded by Van Ramsey, an offer by a fellow Union officer to lead the attack to spare Walter from fighting his own flesh and blood is curtly rejected. Van recognizes his brother as the attack begins and repulses the charge with sharpshooters. Walter orders a nearby artillery battery to shell the fence until it's pulverized, which they do, burying it under smoke and flame. The cavalry charges again and is again met with withering fire. The troop is cut to pieces and Walter is shot off his horse as he attempts to rally his men. Mortally wounded, he struggles to close with the enemy and sees Van. Determined to take Van to hell with him, he grabs his brother and is shocked to discover Van is icy and stiff, dead for hours from the shell fire, like all of his men. Who cut us down? Walter gasps as he collapses beside his kin and scene. So we have a, uh, do we have a little bit of a, uh, I, I, again, I'm jumping in here with a pseudo killjoy. It's more of a question. I didn't know, and maybe you can clear this up for me right now, that potential members of both the Union and Confederate armies were at West Point together. I mean, I guess it makes sense because the war started at some point and all these soldiers were at the same academy together, but it just never occurred to me that they were all together and then the war started and they just went their separate ways to go join their separate armies instead of all killing each other on the spot. <laughs> well, the, the academy represented every portion of the unit, you know, of, uh, every portion of the union, sorry, uh, same divisions and all. You know, it's surprising it held together as long as it did. I mean, you look at all the, so many of the great Confederate generals, you know, like Lee and uh, were uh, for former uh, West Point cadets. One of the Confederate generals, uh, PGT Beauregard, he had briefly been um, appointed the West Point Commandant, you know, as the war started. And, and he said something or somebody overheard something about where his true loyalties lie. And after five days, they canned him. So he's like, all right, well, the hell with you guys. And he just, you know, went to, went to Louisiana. <laughs> so it's, um, it, <laughs> the divisions between Union, Union and Confederate cadets, Northern and Southern cadets, it was, you know, there was at West Point also. So. Yeah. I mean, how long did that go on? Like once the war started, did they just stop having cadets at West Point? Like they were, everyone was busy having a war, right? I'm not going to fake knowledge on that. I would have to assume, yeah. well, you know, during World War II and stuff, you know, you, you just can't throw people into the fire. You got to send people to school and learn how to do stuff and everything, you know. So I have to imagine that West Point was still doing their its thing throughout the war. Hey, and there's, that's sta- there's statues and, and memorials. And you go to Trophy Point and there's, there's, there's all kinds of cannon and stuff down there. It's, I go to West Point all the time. The unit I'm assigned to, uh, we go down there in the summertime and we train the cadets. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a beautiful, beautiful post. Obviously, it's drowning in history. And I would highly recommend if, if you ever have an opportunity, you know, to get it, go there and take a tour, take it. It is well worth the time. I mean, I'm, I'm going there again this year, you know, kind of a couple of weeks. So, 
Yeah, perfect. I mean, like that is a good question too to throw out to to the listeners because by the time this episode finally comes out, we're going to have people, we've already got people making comments and, you know, uh, giving us feedback and whatnot. So that's a good one to throw out to the listeners. You know, what was going on with West Point during, during the action of the Civil War as the war rolled on? So there's that. And now we'll move on to comments and commendations for this story. Okay. I got to know, uh, I'm just going to say Jerry, would eliminate screwing up his last name. Uh, I got to know. <laughs> I got to know Jerry's work from uh, the Unknown Soldier. You know, honestly, at the time, I was never a big fan. But, it, but it's grown on me. He's retired from the comic book field, and I'd like to get a signature if, uh, from him someday if he ever does a con. Uh, but my favorite panel is the inset on page five, where Captain Ramsey, USA, faces the viewer and angrily cheers the artillery on. Burn those revs out! Burn them out like ice! His brother is in there. You know, truly, no love lost. <laughs> Yeah, that is a great panel, and it's it's part of what I'll, of course, mention in my comments here. Now, I really like Jerry T's art, and I always have since I first saw it as a kid. But, you know, then I've always been into the looser, sketchier artists like Carmine Infantino and Frank Springer and them when most of my friends hated this kind of stuff back in the day. In this particular story, I see glimpses of Jim Aparo and Frank Springer, and Jerry's work. And of course, those are two of my other favorite artists. So that doesn't hurt my feelings one bit. And in that panel, you call out, I see a little bit of a Jim Aparo angry face, which is one of my favorite people to draw a screaming angry person. Definitely see it. I love it. To me, of course, all the art is great, as I said, but I'll point out the panel just below the one you called out, which is simply filled with the smoldering wreckage left behind from the artillery barrage. It, it's literally just like there's no narration. There's no, it's just, it's just smoldering wreckage and it just looks awful. Like it kind of, and that one small panel conveys just how powerful that barrage was and how screwed anyone must be to have been within range of that. It's just, it's just a great simple panel, but it shows how good Jerry is as an artist. And I have to also give special mention to the sound effects lettering. All of it in this story is fantastic. Fantastic. I love it. Just the big spang and pew and all that. Just it, it's it's all lettered perfectly. Perfect fonts, placement. I love sound effects and comics. They're not used as often anymore. And this is a good story to go back to and see how to do it right and make it look cool. So, you know, it, it, it's funny that you say that because as, as I review the panels as you're talking, the panel where Van you know, initial, initially opens fire on the Union uh, Cavalry, the crack of, of the rebel sharpshooters, it goes, the sound effect, it hangs over the entire line of the sharpshooters. So you get the impression like it's, it's all of them just cutting loose with a salvo at the same time. And that's... And I hadn't noticed that before. And that's, that's like, you really get the, the image of that's what's going on. That's the sound of it. That's what happened. And none of these sound effects are just randomly thrown in to make like Batman 1966 style Biff Bam Pows. They are part of the image and they're interacting with it. Like you just said, like that piece of lettering for that sound effect shows that there's thought behind it. And I, I don't, I didn't think there was a separate letterer's credit. So this is probably Jerry himself doing his own lettering and that's why they're interacting so well with the drawing but it's just it's excellent work and I people don't mention lettering or sound effects often enough and this one I was just really drawn to them I was so happy to see these 
these really well done sound effects doing such a good job in this story. So safe to say, I like this one. This one was good. <laughs> and uh, now that we've, uh, we've, we've heaped praise upon the second story, we will go on to one of our favorite features, the APO Weird War Tales, the letters page for Weird War. And uh, I'll, let you, I'll let you lead off with this one. Yeah, let me lead off, okay. This is actually kind of an unusual letters page because two-thirds of it is based on letters visitors to the office wrote based on stories and art they saw for the issue that was about to go out or in our case, the one we just discussed in our last podcast. So it's very timely. First, these letters admits to Joe Orlando that taking over for Joe Kubert is no easy task, but he's doing a better than expected job. He doesn't seem to be tracking that every issue prior to it was filled with old reprints. Conniger is a good writer, and I'm surprised Kubert never used him for weird war tales considering he uses him on all the other war books he edits. They did work together in some of the reprints. <laughs> but you know what? He'll have the golem tail. So I'll cut Art Stampler of Brooklyn a break. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it'd be giving the guy too much credit to think that, um, well, did Joe use Bob Conniger in any of the, the sparse new material during Kubert's run? Uh, no, he's probably just spouting off and, and didn't remember that Conniger's name is all over those reprints from the first seven issues. But and I did think that was cool that, you know, a lot of this letters page is from this tour that uh, of people that came through the office and got to see Art and you know, finished pages that hadn't gone out yet. That is really neat. Like that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. That's, <laughs> you know, comics was a smaller business and they did little cool things like that back then. So I'll call out, there's a letter from a Gary Kimber from Ontario, Canada. And he's carrying the freak flag for those of us like me who want more weird in our weird war tales. So I want to read that story. So right, Gary Kimber's letter says, Dear Joe, the possibilities for weird war tales are boundless if you want to take the right direction. Human war is boring, endless, while another race's method in war may be very interesting. Only with the current issue, number six, do you really deserve the title weird? Still, these stories concern humans primarily. Why not try intergalactic war, complete with lasers, spaceships, and weird beings? Or have the dead rise from the earth to terrorize mankind? Man, like I said, the possibilities are there if you are willing to sacrifice the last semblance of realism you have. Way to go, Gary. And like some of that has, some of that has come true. The dead have risen, you know, and it's getting weirder as we go on. I just like how, you know, he's like, you want to sacrifice the last semblance of realism you have. Like this guy should probably come in and write a weird war tale. I was just drawn by that. That would have been my letter in to the series. I would have been like, you said this was going to be weird. What's up? You know? Waiting! <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of weird, we're going to go on to just what Gary Kimber ordered, the third story in this issue, and Rich, you are up. The Last Battle, written by, again, Bob Conniger, art by Alex Nino. 1972 is in the dim past. Earth East fires their doomsday bomb at Earth West, which retaliates with their Holocaust bomb. Unleashed hydrogen incinerates everything, reducing civilization to smoldering ashes. A man from Earth West drags himself from the rubble and searches for other survivors in the ruins. Days pass, and he realizes he's the only one left. As he considers tossing his blaster into the harbor, an energy blast nearly misses him. An enemy survivor. The war goes on. A cat and mouse game is played for days until he gets lucky and shoots the enemy survivor. He's shocked to discover it's a woman. Immediately remorseful, he swears to take care of her, hopeful to start a new world, not divided by fear and hate. 
The woman calls him a fool and reveals she's booby-trapped, time to self-destruct in one second. The explosion destroys them both, and it's revealed the survivors were actually both robots. A recording clear, still defiantly exclaiming, there's no room in this world for East and West. Only East, only East, only East. Oh, points for the fade out. That was great. <laughs> Love it. We didn't use any effects on that. You're that welcome. Rich. That was Rich doing the, the fade out of the dying robots East. Perfect. So, all right. I'll, I'll kick it off here with comments and commendations. Okay, here's another artist whose work I loved at first sight back in the day and probably appreciate even more now. Beyond the energetic, dynamic nature of the individual drawings, it's Nino's page design that impresses me here and his use of stylistic changes to keep your eyes engaged. Page three, the bottom row, the middle panel, switches to a stark silhouetted pattern for no reason, but it heightens the tension and keeps the page looking interesting. And then on page four, the top row of panels shows the survivor crawling across one landscape in separate moments that are framed off, which is a trick I always like. So that all being said, the robot reveal at the end is dumb, makes no sense, and I'm going to pretend that it didn't happen. So yeah, I don't like that. There's, why would he be so concerned? Oh, you're a woman. We can start a new civilization because we're both robots. I just, no, I don't like yeah. that. Yeah, that was that was a little disappointing. I mean, it was it, it did kind of give you the you know ending, but it's just like but they didn't need to go there. You know, just you know having the two last survivors die in a selfish act would have been enough. But you know, for those of us old enough to remember po the post-apocalyptic stories from the seventies and eighties have turned into period pieces: the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, duck and cover. Yes. I hid in the hall in elementary school. I'm that old. Millions die in a flash, and a handful struggle to survive in the ruins. Uh, stories like this have always resonated with me, and it's the odd future tale that is my favorite. But in this issue, this is this is the one. This, this was my favorite of the, of the three. I, like, I really, really like Blood Brothers, but I had I had to give my final my final nod to this one. Yeah, man. If it wasn't for that robot reveal at the end, this would have easily been my first place story and uh, Nino's art really makes it a dead heat for me uh, I, I find it hard to really pick between Blood Brothers and this one because of that you know I, I appreciate the the dumb twist ending I've certainly enjoyed dumber ones than this but this one just even betrayed its own logic like okay maybe the guy wasn't aware he was a robot but she seemed to be aware she was what I, I no I don't get it but that that being said, post-apocalyptic stories are my all-time favorite genre in fiction. To go to my other nerd side, Gamma World is one of my favorite role-playing games. And most, if not all, of my own stories I've noticed over the years, my own little amateur stories I've worked on forever, they're all about apocalypses and post-apocalyptic realities. So... Yeah, this one, this one has everything, you know, all lined up for me too. And, and, and also excellent art. It's just that, that ending threw me, man. But yeah, you hid in the hallways. I, I remember going to like this like makeshift bomb shelter in kindergarten when we did our drills for, uh, for the bomb. But um, what was hiding in the hallways? What was all well, that? I, I think, well, I think what the premise behind it was, was you have the, you know, the big glass windows and everything like right there. And if something hits close enough, it's just going to blow all that glass in, just make an additional shrap. 
shrapnel and everything else like that. So so rather than trying to hide underneath your desk, the idea was they they let everybody into the hallway and you, you you just curled yourself up into a ball, you know, next to the wall, you know, head down, just you know, make yourself as small a target as possible. And they did that for like a year or two. And I think I you know the powers that you'd be are probably like, but you know, you're all gonna die anyway. You might as well just die anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so they just stopped yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's obviously like I was, a, you know, we were all little kids, and I just remember being led to this, you know, almost like bulkhead looking thing with a radiation symbol on it, you know. And I, I think I remember my thought being like, so after this, we go straight to recess? Like, you know, I wasn't really scared by any of it, you know, until like that, that horrible movie came out, like what the day after, you know, that came out in the eighties, that was like, you know, that TV movie, or at least they played it on TV about if I, uh, I, I know which one you're talking about. I, yeah. I don't remember if I ever watched it or that not. That freaked but... me out. So like, you know, the cold war baby, like here we are 1972 still raging on and it keeps going on into the eighties for real. Now, speaking of, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear death, we come to our one-page end framing sequence called Half death. page. Half <laughs> page, yeah. It's, it's on one page. Um, it's called Death, the Ultimate Winner. It's uh, like, like you've, you've written here. It's probably the same creative team that did the, um, the opening page the beginning of the issue there's no credits so we're gonna go with that but um we have three panels so again just barely half the page showing one panel showing two cavemen fighting in the jungle the next is a man destroying a robot with a blaster and the last is two uh post-apocalyptic survivors (laughs) fighting in the ruins of a blasted city um so you know kind of similar themes to what we've seen in the issue you know i'll jump and do my comments and commendations first here like a rebel and just say damn that is a lazy framing page especially compared to what we've become used to the drawings are really nice i i really dig the the jungle one the two cavemen fighting in the jungle the best so i can say that about it yeah that one kind of um, of the three of them you know the cavemen fighting in the jungle that one kind of is this like this cubert-esque look to it but you know uh, in my favorite one is is the two guys fighting in the in the ruins of the city you know just like i just said you know the post-apocalyptic stuff you know, where it really resonates, but it's, you know, it's kind of like a week ending, you know, it's just like, it's a half page. It's just like, well, I know we got another page, a half page here, but you know, it's time for me to get that three martini lunch at, at five o'clock or something. So out later, see you tomorrow. Yeah. I'll let, yeah, I'll let Orlando get his feet under him. And this wasn't terrible work by any means, but it was just a bit light compared to what we're used to. We'll, so we'll see what comes later on. And like you said, the, the cubertness of that first panel is obviously what drew me to it and if this is still a young chicken here i think it's obvious that and understandable that joe was one of his early influences he probably went to the cubert school i i don't know that for sure but i bet he did so of course i'm drawn to the the more cubert like drawing so there we have the end of the actual story content of the issue so as usual we are going to switch around and spotlight our favorite ads from this issue and i'll let rich take the lead Okay. Wind tunnel tested SSP, supersonic power. Kenner gives him the shape and howl of power. You race him. Wind velocity in scale, 500 miles per hour. Gyro powered. No batteries, your track. It has one of those serrated plastic 
pull cords to pull through the toy to set it off. I may have had something similar to this as a kid, but I'd really like to know how they figured out the 500 mile per hour in scale claim. It's just a your typical goofy 70s car toy, <laughs> but it is the one that talked to me the loudest, so that's the one I select. Oh, it's a, it's a great, like, I like how the ad is drawn. I like all the hype, you know, and the claim of, like, you. it leads off with wind tunnel tested supersonic power. Like, that is... That's a cool angle to take. I would have totally fallen for that as a kid. (laughs) And I had a ton of those cars and other vehicles that you just pulled the cord through and sent them flying into the wall across the room. Those were still going strong by the time several years later when I was a kid or a little kid anyway. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those great hand-drawn ads in a comic book that you don't see anymore. Everything's photographs or whatever. I really like this one too. And for me, the ad that I know I would have gone even more berserk for was superhero stick-ons. I must have seen ads for these or something very much like them when I was a kid later on. Because when I saw this ad today, 2021, my desire to buy all of these things and put them on every surface of my living space rose up in me like I was being possessed by my own six-year-old self. I mean, this is all these great images of DC Comics characters in various sizes and very classically rendered art that you could stick all over the damn house on books, on walls, on everything. I would have covered my whole room in these things. Like, it's, it's a good thing I didn't see this ad and find a way to fill out an envelope when I was a kid because I or now you know because I would be doing that well, well that's the funny thing because you look at this ad and, and uh, you know it says stick your favorites up against the wall or door notebook punch box car yeah slap these on your car see what dad said <laughs> go ahead try it oh i would have found green out arrow off my car you bastard. <laughs> i would have found out for sure <laughs> i didn't have a lot of impulse control uh 14 for only 225 yeah man i mean just fantastic another issue of um of cool ads and and those two really did stand out so that brings us to the end of another episode and uh before we go i want to remind everyone to go to our weird warrior podcast Facebook page where we'll post photos of a lot of the things we talk about on each episode. You can also find us on Twitter at Weird War Pod and at Weird Warriors Podcast on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Also, we'd like to thank everyone who has come out and supported us by following our pages, commenting on our episodes, and of course, downloading our shows. We hope everyone's enjoying what we're putting out there. And we promise that we are listening to what you have to say. We'll take a moment here to mention some of the folks who stopped by our encampments to increase our morale. And if we miss anyone, well, it's Rich's fault, really. Yeah, so, as, 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 as it should, as it should. Yeah. Starting off with the Into the Weird podcast, hosted by Billy D and Herman, who have been ardent supporters of the show and were the first podcast to play our promo. Billy and Herman also host the Long Box of Darkness, as well as, in my opinion, the incredible A World on Fire all-star squadron podcast one of my favorite books and something i would have done a show on if they weren't doing a perfect job already we have from crisis to crisis from the fortress of bailey tude created by michael bailey he also played our promo on their show and some of our early twitter supporters kirk spencer at big five army iowa's joe crawford at Iowa's Joe, Luke Giaconetti at LJ Cone on Twitter, host of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. Also, Sir Martin Gray, 
from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, who has been very encouraging of our efforts from even before the beginning when I was just considering starting this. Uh, Peter Watson from the Earth 2 podcast, who has been another very enthusiastic booster of our show. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Rick Heineken from the Jeff and Rick Present on Packing the Power of Power Pack podcast, as well as from the monthly movie Muckabout show over on the Longbox Crusade, which I have had the honor of being a guest on. Rick has been extremely generous to us and even hosted a virtual podcasting 101 for us on Zoom when I let him know that we were going down this road. Of course, I would like to thank Shag Matthews and Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It was their Who's Who in the DC Universe podcast that led me to discover the world of comic book podcasting in the first place. So blame them, I guess. And then we have Ciscoid from Ciscoid's Blog of Geekery and from several shows also on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He is yet another person who was nice enough to have me on as a guest on not one, but two of his shows panel by panel and who's editing, look him up. So he's yet another person who very kindly opened the door to this community to me and therefore to this very show. We'd like to thank each and every person who has liked our Facebook page, followed us on Twitter, or listened to any of our episodes. We are but your humble soldiers in the weird world of podcasting. And as always, we promise to make war no more. (laughs) 